If you've been with us, you know that we've been walking through the Gospel of John and we've spent many weeks looking at what is called the Upper Room Discourse and then looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus and his now 11 apostles have been uh, crowded around together, uh, possibly outside now of the, the walls of Jerusalem on a full moon in the, in the night as they stand next to the Kidron Valley about to cross into the Garden of Gethsemane. And our passage this morning is John chapter 18. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 12. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open them up and, and follow along as I read and then keep them open as, uh, as we go through the passage because we'll be looking at specific verses and words. If you don't have a Bible, uh, forgot to bring one or don't own one, and but would like to follow along, you can find a Bible in the seat in front of you underneath. And if you're going to be using that Bible this morning, you'll find our text on page 904. So this is John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So John says after Jesus or when Jesus had spoken these words. Now obviously the words that he had just spoken uh, we see in the high priestly prayer. Jesus had just uh, led them in the lengthiest prayer that we have in the Bible recorded of, of Jesus anyway. And, uh, and Jesus had prayed not only for himself, he had prayed for those 11 that were standing there. And then he also, as we saw the last couple of weeks, he prayed for us. He prayed for the, the church that was to come, those who would believe in him through the word of the apostles. And so that's one of the things that, that obviously John is talking about. I think he's also talking about uh, all of the words that Jesus had spoken that night. Again, in that upper room discourse when they 
had the Last Supper together, Jesus had shared with them many important truths, many great promises that they needed to hold on to when all of this was about to happen and befall them. Interestingly, John doesn't mention, but Matthew tells us, that just before they crossed over and went into the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So we know from Matthew that they also sung a hymn together. And we know historically what that hymn was. And that hymn was Psalm 118, which is what we just had read earlier in the service. That was part of the, the grouping of psalms that were sung the night of the Passover. And it's interesting when you look at Psalm 118 just how perfectly it fits with what was to happen that night. Psalm 118 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. And then it goes on to say this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And it ends with, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. They sung that hymn just before crossing over the Kidron Valley and heading into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Matthew and Mark tell us, Luke uh, doesn't and, uh, and John doesn't, name the garden. Uh, John just says here where there was a garden. Matthew and, and Mark tell us that it was named Gethsemane, which means oil press. They were crossing, if, if you've uh, ever been to Israel uh, and been to Jerusalem, or if you've seen photos or even pictures uh, drawn in, in your Bible, uh, what you, you see is that uh, there's a a valley called the Kidron Valley, which is next to the city of Jerusalem. It's below the wall there. And then on the other side of that valley is the Mount of Olives. And on that hill there called the Mount of Olives, you had lots of olive trees. And so there was this garden presumably there called Gethsemane, which meant oil press. It was a garden probably owned by a wealthy supporter of Jesus and his mission, and so this wealthy supporter would allow Jesus and his disciples when they were in the area, when they were there in the area of Jerusalem, to go into that garden. It was probably a walled garden. It was a place of refuge, a place of prayer, a place where they could go and talk about the day's events, where Jesus probably taught them, where they prayed together. All of that happened in that garden called olive or oil press. 
Now what we see here is that John tells us uh, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. Luke tells us that as well. He says that every day when Jesus was teaching in the temple, he would do that during the day, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. It was his custom, Luke said, to go to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples would follow him there. One scholar says this, the time at night and the location away from the city itself, removed from crowds that would become mobs, provided the betrayer with an ideal venue in which to bring the arresting officers right up to Jesus. See, the betrayer knew exactly where this place was. They all knew. All the disciples knew because they went there all the time, and it was there that Jesus went. When he left the the city of Jerusalem that night after saying that people were coming and that one of them had left to betray him and was going to bring soldiers to arrest him, you would think if you're an observer of just with the naked eye that when Jesus and his disciples leave the city and they cross over and, and are walking away, that they would be going into hiding. That that's why they went into this secluded garden surrounded by walls. But when we look at the way John speaks of this, that the betrayer himself knew where it was located, that they went there often, what you see instead is that Jesus was not going there to hide, that rather Jesus was going there to be found, that he wasn't trying to escape death, rather he was going there to accept it. Of course, we know that accepting this suffering wasn't easy for him. We see, not in John's gospel, but we see in the other uh, gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that he agonized in the garden that night. That when they entered the garden, he uh, walked in and asked his apostles to pray for him. That he was overwhelmed with sorrow. And going a little bit further, he took with him uh, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, to go with him a little bit further. And then he even left them and went alone, where he fell on his face, and Luke tells us he sweat drops of blood. It's interesting that Peter, James, and John were the three that he brought furthest with him to see the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, because it wasn't Too long before that, that he took those same three with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. That it was on the Mount of Transfiguration that that those three got to see his deity unveiled. That those three got to witness the glory that had been veiled but was unveiled at that moment. And it is here in the garden that Jesus takes those same three to witness his full humanity as he sweats drops of blood and agonizes and prays that he could be released from this cup. Hugh Martin, who actually pointed this out to me, he was a a 19th century Scottish pastor, and he said this, I found this very interesting, he said, if Peter could have gotten his own way, he would have been on the Mount of Transfiguration still. 
and there never would have been the agony of Gethsemane. He would have made tabernacles, and he would have dwelt there enjoying the glory and striking from the shame. But then, this proposed arrangement of this would have cost the world salvation. For it was not amidst the glory and the radiance of the holy mount, but amidst the darkness and the anguish of the garden and the section of the cross that redemption was achieved and sealed. John tells us that suddenly there arrives there quite a show of force. Verse 3. What we see is that Judas is leading the way. Now, he's not leading these guys in the sense that he's their commander. But he's leading them to where this guy is. He's the rat, and they're following him so that he can hand him over. And, and what we see from John, who was an eyewitness that night, that Judas came not with a couple of guys. He came with a bunch of, on the one hand, Roman soldiers. Now, the, the actual word that John uses can mean hundreds of soldiers. Perhaps that's what it was. Now, we say, well, how in the world is Judas, a, a man who has no command whatsoever over the Romans, going to acquire a bunch of Roman soldiers to come and do this thing that he wants done? Well, interestingly, we know that at Passover, the city of Jerusalem was filled with Roman soldiers because they were there to keep the peace in case a riot broke out. And so Judas had at his disposal a bunch of Roman soldiers that he could go to and say, hey, look, we're about to apprehend this guy. There could be trouble. Well, that could bring these guys out to make sure that no trouble happens and that whoever they're arresting goes peacefully. But he also brings with him the temple police of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were essentially the Supreme Court in Israel, in Jerusalem. And so not only does this band of Roman soldiers come, but also the temple police from the Sanhedrin. And so right here in this grouping, you have both Jew and Gentile alike. In essence, you have the entire world represented there coming out against the Lord Jesus. And they're carrying with them lanterns and torches and weapons and leading the way twice listed as the betrayer is judas now when we think of judas i think we often immediately go to him as the one who betrayed jesus and and i think we should that's that's what he's known for that's in fact what jesus himself calls him as the son of perdition so in the one sense judas is known rightly for having done that. But when you think about Judas the man, and you think about the fact that he was chosen by Christ and that he followed Jesus closely and was one of his closest associates for three years, that he heard everything that he taught, that he saw everything that he did, that he saw the healings that he did, that he was loved by Jesus, that he, Jesus prayed with and for him, that someone like that could do what he did. Sometimes it staggers the mind to consider that. That Judas could not only betray him, but betray him in the way that he did. That he could bring these men to their place. 
their place, the, the place that Jesus had carved out for them as a quiet retreat, that he would invade that and be that, make that place of Gethsemane the place of arrest and betrayal. That he would walk up to Jesus, the man who had taught him and loved him for three years, and kiss him on the cheek to show that he was the one they were to arrest. You think, how could he do that? But it's interesting, when Judas walks up to Jesus and kisses him, he says, greetings, rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. Judas, I think, was demonstrating in that moment that teacher was all Jesus ever was to him. You see, you can live around Jesus for a long time. You can be raised in a Christian home. You can be taken to Sunday school every Sunday. You can even play guitar up front and sing and lead us in song. You can go to a Christian college. You can become a member of a church. You can do all of these things outwardly and never truly believe that Jesus is Lord. Judas demonstrates that. Now, when those men assembled together, when, when Judas said, we need to go arrest this guy and there could be trouble, and when all these guys, these soldiers, these men gathered together and they grabbed torches and they grabbed weapons, what do you presume that they thought they would encounter? If, if I try to wager, it doesn't say, but I, I would guess that they're thinking they're going to encounter flight and fight. That whoever they're going to arrest is not only going to try to run from this force, but they may also have a fight on their hands. I mean, that's what, that's what this looks like. I mean, why else would you come out with weapons and torches and huge numbers of men? But notice what happens. When they arrive at this place, it says in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? John doesn't give us the, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. In a sense, he swaps out that prayer for the high priestly prayer, the prayer that we just went through that the synoptic gospels don't give us. But John kind of summarizes the prayer in the Garden with that one little clause there, comma, knowing all that would happen to him. Comma. You see, Jesus knew and foresaw what would happen to him, and that's what gave him the agony in the garden. But knowing all that would happen to him, John says he came forward. And he says, whom do you seek? Jesus is the first to speak. They don't have to ask. They don't have to shout anything. He asks them, who is it that you're looking for? Now, of course, all you have to do is read through the Gospels to know that they had been seeking him for a while. Matthew 21, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And so they were seeking to arrest him. Mark 14, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Luke 22, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. And John 5, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
You see, prior to this night, they'd never been able to lay a hand on him. All of the seeking in the world had not garnered them their prey. Because the Bible makes it clear that it wasn't until that night that Jesus' hour had arrived. And Jesus, Luke's gospel says, he said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders, all who had come out against him, he looked at them and said, have you come out against me as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. He says this, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus knew that it was his hour. And so he goes out and says, who do you seek? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says to them, I am he. Now if you're there and you're one of these Soldiers, especially the Roman soldiers, you would think, what in the world is going on here? That's what I think I I would be thinking. I mean, can you imagine what's going on in their minds? That maybe even Judas is wondering what's going on. All of the planning, all of the scheming, all of the 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 backdoor discussions, all of the discussion of, hey, if if he tries to go this way, we'll cut him off here. If he tries to go that way, we'll cut him off here. Maybe discussions of, of where will he try to escape to. All of these things going on. And Judas saying, I will walk up and kiss him and then you'll know who it is. And all of this. And Jesus cuts it all off and says, here I am. Not a fight. No defense. He simply steps forward and identifies himself. Now, on the one hand, Jesus is simply identifying himself. They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, well, you found him. Here I am. On the other hand, though, Jesus is saying something far more profound here. Because in our English Bibles, in order to make this comprehensible, the English translators have added a he on the end of that. I am he. But if you read the Greek, he simply says, I am. There are seven key I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus, throughout the Gospel, says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And each of those seven I am statements, in one way or another, directly points to Jesus. It's Jesus saying to those who could hear and who had ears to hear, I am God. Every one of those statements, in in one way or another, makes a claim to deity. But there were two times when Jesus used no qualifier. He simply said, I am. One was in John chapter 8. Jesus was in a debate with the Jewish leaders, and he said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, probably mockingly, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? 
And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And here he says it again. In John 18, verse 5, Jesus said to them, I am. Now, Why does he say that? Well, if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, the famous uh, story of Moses and the burning bush. Moses is walking along. He sees a bush that's burning. It's not being consumed. He walks up to the bush and he hears God speaking from the midst of the bush. And God tells him, take off your sandals for the place where you stand is holy ground. And in this discussion that Moses has with God in this burning bush, says this in Exodus chapter 3, then Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when Jesus looks at these men and he simply replies, I am, he is saying to all who could hear that night, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. In other words, what he is saying to this band is you came here looking for a man. But what you have found in man is the God of the universe. It was very important that his disciples hear him say this. I think it's very important that we today hear him say this. Because Jesus that night was making it clear to everyone that he was not a passive, sorry victim. He was making it clear to everyone that the creator and the sustainer of all life on earth was even at that very moment sustaining the very life of the men who had come to arrest him. Jesus was making it clear to his apostles and to us this morning that this arrest was entirely voluntary. He was in other words, surrendering to a force he could have easily vanquished. In fact, Jesus says this to, to Peter. We'll see in a moment Peter draw this sword out. But in Matthew 26, he, we, we hear that, that, that Jesus adds a little bit to what John, what, what John says that he says, that, that Jesus says, look, put your sword back in its place, Peter. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? You really think that this pitiful little force could in any way arrest me unless I gave them the authority to do so? Earlier in John chapter 10, when Jesus was talking about Himself being the good shepherd, He says this, The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me. I lay my life down of my own accord. I, I have the authority to lay my life down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And so by identifying himself in that moment as the I am, 
He was disclosing to all there that he was far more than a man. And John tells us that something incredible happened at that moment. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. John was an eyewitness of this. Can you imagine witnessing that? Jesus saying, I am, and everyone falling to the ground. Why? Why did they fall to the ground? I'm not sure why. John doesn't tell us. When I thought about it this week, it, I, I thought, well, it couldn't have been simply because he identified himself that way, because he's about to say it again a second time, and they're not going to fall. They're going to come forward and simply arrest him and haul him off. I mean, in other words, it can't be that those words are magic. If you simply say, I am, the result is everyone falls down. Because he said it before. He said it in John chapter 8. I just quoted it. And what did they do? They didn't fall down. They, they sought to stone him for blasphemy. Also, if you think about it, what, what in the world would that, those, that word, that phrase, I am, have meant to those Roman soldiers? They, they don't know who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, and yet they fall down as well. I don't know exactly what happened in that moment, but I think that what happened was that Jesus unleashed a little bit of his divine power. And for one brief moment, you see, he was about to hand himself over and become the lamb. But I think for a brief moment, Jesus was giving the world a preview of the future. That at the name of Jesus one day, every knee will bow. And he gave them that preview that night. Because remember who was there that night. I mean, it was, yes, in one sense, the whole world, it was the Jews and the Romans, the Jews and the Gentiles, and, and at the end of the age when Jesus returns, there won't be one human being that will be left standing. We will all bow before his majesty. But remember who else was there? Satan. Satan had entered Judas that night, and so he was present. He was there because he was about to fulfill his destiny. He was about to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But even then, when by the naked eye it, it would seem that Satan was about to garner his greatest victory, Jesus reminded him that one day one little word is going to fell him. How incredible this is when we really think about this. How how humbling this is that, that the great I am, that the God of the universe so humbled himself that the Lord of all standing there that night essentially humbled himself and held out his hands so that they might be nailed to a cross. Jesus asked them again in verse 7, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus repeats himself. Who is it that you seek? He has them say it again, Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Why do they have to say it again? 
It's because Jesus wants them to repeat his name. He wants them to repeat his name because Jesus, that specific Jesus, was named Jesus because it meant the Lord saves. And Jesus makes sure that they make it clear with their own voice that that's who they're seeking before he hands himself over in order to save his people from their sins. And Jesus says, and what an amazing statement, well, if you've come for me, let these other guys go. Think of that statement. In one statement, you have the doctrine of the atonement. Jesus says, take me and let my sheep go free. My sheep, my sheep who, will, who couldn't stay awake and pray with me although I asked them to. My sheep who will be scattered and run from me in my moment of greatest need. My sheep, one of whom who will, who will curse my name and deny three times that he even knows me. Let them go free so that I, the sinless one, may die in their place. Take me. Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus, in that moment, when he said, take me and set them free, is exemplifying the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Out of their own mouth, out of their own mouth, Jesus leads them to declare for all to hear that he is Satan's target. Their business is with him. Interestingly, John says this, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. It's a quite amazing statement there because normally when, you re when you're reading through the Gospels, and the gospel writer says, this was to fulfill what had been written or what had been spoken. The gospel writer is referring back to an Old Testament prophecy. So for instance, you find in Matthew chapter 2, when Jesus was born, he arose, meaning Joseph, uh, Jesus' earthly father, he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And then Matthew says this, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. What's really interesting about this is that when John quotes this, this was to fulfill what he had said, John isn't referring back to an Old Testament prophecy. He's referring back to something Jesus had just said moments before in the high priestly prayer. In John 17, 12, Jesus prays, while I was with them, I kept your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, meaning Judas. Jesus has just prayed that, standing there by the Kidron Valley, that only one of the apostles would be lost, and that the rest would be kept. And here Judas is, the one that was lost, standing there to arrest him, and they hear Jesus say, set them free. John said that was to fulfill what Jesus had just said would happen. 
It's so amazing that John is quoting Jesus as though he is a prophet, an Old Testament prophet. Although it's not that amazing when you think that everything the Old Testament prophet said was the word of God, and here was the word of God incarnate saying these things. And then John tells us Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, the sword that Peter most likely used was a short sword, a Roman short sword. It it was like a long dagger. And that was used by the Roman soldiers who knew how to use it. It was used to stab, not swipe and cut. Peter obviously doesn't know how to use the thing. So he clumsily swipes at the guy rather than stabbing him and misses his head completely and and just glances and, and cuts off his ear. Now let's give Peter some credit here. Because I think if we think about that night, we really only ever focus on Peter's denial oftentimes. He denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed, which we will see. But one of the things that Peter said prior to all of this is that he would stick by Jesus even if he had to die, that he would never leave Jesus. Of course, Jesus tells him, yeah, you're going to deny three times you even know me. But think about it. In the moment, it seems that Peter means what he said. Because they're surrounded, I mean, obviously there's no way looking at this force arrayed against them that Peter thinks he can kill them all before they kill him. It it looks as though he's going to defend Jesus even if it costs him his life. And so he tries to defend him. Now, I can only imagine the rage that he feels towards Judas. Here's a man that you know, maybe he prayed with on a number of occasions that he shared meals with, a guy that, how could you possibly have done this? I could imagine the person he most wanted to kill was him. He happens to swing at the high priest's servant. Now, of course, we know that Peter's going to deny Jesus, and I think when we see this complex man, this this picture of a man who sometimes has great courage and sometimes runs from a little girl by the fire, I think we can see ourselves in him. Because I know if I look at my own life and my own walk with the Lord, sometimes, sometimes I have great courage. Sometimes when I'm confronted by a non-Christian in this world and he's asking me questions about the Lord, I reply with, Uh, my biblical wisdom and knowledge, and I put down every argument that's uh, raised, that's lofted up against the, the Lord, and then other times I find myself running like a coward, unable to know what to say. I think sometimes our faith looks as rock solid as can be, and sometimes I think we wonder if we have any faith at all. And that's what we find in Peter. Interestingly, it is John's gospel, and only John's gospel, that names both Peter and Malchus, the high priest's servant. If you read the other accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't name Peter. They just say one of the guys grabbed a sword and hacked off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Scholars have wondered why it is that John is the only one that actually names Peter. 
And I was reading Richard Baucom's book, P, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It's a great book. And, and one of the things that he surmises in there, I think it's a great argument, is that the other three Gospels were written prior to A.D. 64, which is when Peter was killed, which is when he was martyred. And because they were written prior to A.D. 64, Peter was left anonymous in order to keep him safe. That Peter was out preaching, that he was, that he was trying to lead people to the Lord, and if it had been written in those Gospels that it was Peter who had hacked off the high priest's servant's ear, he would have been a marked man, more so than he already was. By the time John wrote his Gospel, it was late, probably uh, anywhere from 80 to uh, you know, 100 or, or something like that. And so it was far after Peter had been crucified, and so there was no danger in revealing who it was. So John came along and said, I'll tell you who hacked it off. It was Peter. Now, if he was never named, I think if I was reading this and I had to guess who it was, I probably would have guessed Peter. Because in my mind, they brought two swords that night. I would think the one guy that was holding one of the swords was probably Simon the Zealot. Peter was probably holding the other one, but Simon would have known how to use it. So out of the two, Peter would be my guess, and we find out that is who it was. And Jesus turns to Peter. He says, put your sword away, Peter. Essentially, I am allowing this to happen. It's interestingly, it's Dr. Luke who tells us that Jesus healed the man's ear uh, before he said that. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? When Jesus refers to the cup, he is referring to the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah 51, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations whom I send to you drink it. Revelation 16, 19, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. The cup that Jesus was agonizing over was far more than the physical torture that he was about to endure. As brutal as that was, crucifixion was known as the worst form of torture that the Romans could think of. But that cup paled in comparison to the cup of wrath that he was about to drink to the dregs. What's so amazing when you read his statement here is in, in John's summary here, here of the prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, can't, uh, I must drink the cup that the Father has given me, is that only moments before he had begged three times that the Father remove the cup from him. How can he go moments before saying, Father, please take this cup from me to mere moments later, boldly coming forward and saying, I must drink the cup of the Father's wrath. Well, remember what he says at the end of his pleading. Father, yet not my will, but yours. When Jesus, the perfect Holy One, 
says, not my will, but yours, he means it. I think when we say it, oftentimes we don't. That Jesus could change so dramatically means that when he stood up from that prayer, he was 100% devoted to his Father's will. John concludes with this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews, this weak, sorry, pitiful force, arrested Jesus and bound him. Here is Jesus, fully God and yet fully man. Jesus, the great I am and yet also the Lamb of God, being led away to the slaughter. He is allowing himself to be arrested and bound. What's interesting as well about this account is that a thousand years earlier, King David, King David who was himself betrayed by his closest, betrayed by Absalom, his son. Second Samuel tells us that King David also left Jerusalem and crossed the Kidron Valley and went to the other side. If you read that account, you see that King David crosses the Kidron Valley in order to save himself. And here we have in this account, a thousand years later, David's greater son, also betrayed by his closest, crossing the Kidron Valley to save others. King David crossed the Kidron to save his life, and Jesus crossed it to give his. The New Testament is very clear about this. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness. Brothers and sisters, this morning rejoice that Jesus gave himself willingly for you. And that night, in the light of the full Passover moon, he asked a question, whom do you seek? And I ask all of you that this morning. Whom do you seek? Because all of us seek after someone or something in this world. Our scripture passage this morning says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Because please understand that it didn't end that way. If we just stop here, then it's a, a sorrowful story with a bitter end. But only three days later, 
Only three days later, as Mary Magdalene stood by an empty tomb, that same voice that asked the question that night asked her, woman, whom do you seek? Brothers and sisters, this morning rejoice because the voice that spoke to her came from the risen and glorified Savior who will one day return to complete the redemption that he began that night. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for reminding us of our Lord and his sacrifice. Thank you that he did for us what we could never have done, that he gave himself up to save us from our sins. May we never forget that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.